Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. I'm not fine. Don't raise your hand. But I would imagine a whole lot of us in this room could say, that's me. And sometimes what it is that makes us not fine is we just seem to be doubting. We're just doubting. At least that's what we call it. So I want you to fill in the blank. This is a person in the New Testament known as Doubting Thomas. Shame on you for calling him a doubter. The truth of it is, he did. But he didn't doubt the way we think. And I'm not sure you're there either. Because let me just tell you, there are two kinds of doubt. There is what I call the pseudo-doubt. You run into people every once in a while, oh, I'm a doubter, I'm a doubter. What they mean is, I've already got my mind made up. Well, then you're not doubting. If you already believe there is no God, you believe, then you've already made your mind up. And, and the problem with that is, is that there's no room for the truth. But an honest doubter is someone who says, I'm, I'm really seeking the truth. I just, I really want to know the truth. I can't, I can't articulate it. I can't wrap my mind around it right now, but I'm, I'm looking for the truth. That's an honest doubter. And let me give you a wonderful principle in Scripture. This book teaches us every honest doubter who seeks the truth will find the truth. You'll find the truth. It's here. Every person who was an honest seeker found the truth. Now, there are two kinds of doubt, even with an honest doubter, which is what we call emotional, or I would call it circumstantial, experiential. And then there's the intellectual. You probably know about the intellectual. Those are the guys that are always debating and arguing on the existence of God. And that's an intellectual argument. They, they have, in their mind, come to the place of saying the evidence is not there, and, and so there is no God, or maybe there's not a God, and they're agnostic. Let me show you a book that uh, if you really want to challenge, if you want help falling asleep quickly at night, this is a tough book. Is Atheism Dead? Eric Metaxas. It's one of the best books. A friend gave me this book. And I started reading, and it's fascinating. Let me tell you what he believes, and there are a lot of people who believe the same thing. Atheism is scientifically, historically, and philosophically untenable today. There's too much evidence. It's basically what he's saying. But still, that is a type of doubt that is intellectual. But then there's a place where most of us live. And it's what I call experiential doubt or circumstantial. Thank you, Abby. It means I can't understand the circumstances. I can't understand the brokenness around me. I, I can't, I, it just doesn't make sense. Let me tell you, I, I have struggled with that. It doesn't mean I, I didn't believe that God was there. I just, I'm just not sure I know him. 
And I, there were moments along the way where that was the case. And it was because he didn't do it the way I thought he should. Have you ever been there? You just struggle with God because he didn't do it. I mean, just he couldn't figure him out. You know, here's some good news. If you could figure God out completely, he really wouldn't be God. You would be, right? I want a God that has mystery. I want a God that's a lot bigger than my thoughts so that I will forever be pursuing him passionately. And wanting to know. And there are seasons where we're going to go through where we're trying to do that and we're trying to make sense of things. So let me give you a a great example. When I was in Jerusalem on one of the trips taking groups over, I I was on Ben Yehuda Street. And some of you know where Ben Yehuda Street is. If you've ever grown up in Israel or you've been in Jerusalem much, it's a street that has a lot of shops and it's kind of the the old culture of of the old city and and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to walk down through. I went into a shop, and I was just standing there talking to, to people in the shop. And there was a, I guess he was the owner. He was behind the counter. And, I mean, obviously Jewish. And I looked up, and there was a picture of a guy that he had framed. And it said, Messiah, question mark. And, I mean, this guy looked like. Elijah. I mean, the guy in the picture, he looked like Moses or Elijah. And so I'm talking to this shop owner and I said, so, so who is that? And he gave me his name and he said, we're hoping he's the Messiah. I said, wow. And, and I see his picture around a lot and I see it on billboards. And oh yeah, we're hoping he's the Messiah. I said, you know, I know you've probably met Christians before because we come here all the time. Man, I'm just so glad I don't have to hope. I, I know a Messiah. I know the Messiah. And I just believe Jesus is the Messiah. And this is what he did. He said, okay, then help me understand something. He walks around from behind the counter. He goes over to the wall of his little shop, and he points up, and he says, you see that? And it was a bullet hole through concrete. I mean, literally, bullet hole. And there was another one. And he points to another one, and another one, and another one. He said, these came from an uprising that you guys probably heard of back in the States. And so they came and they shot up all these shops, and, and, and they, did, they tried to do harm to Jews here. So let me ask you a question. If your Jesus is Messiah, how do you explain this? How do you explain violence? How do you explain pain? How do you explain all the suffering? The Messiah is a prince of peace. And let me tell you, for a moment, in a shop on Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem, I said, Jesus, you got to help me out here. And I said, sir, I understand what you're saying. I believe he is the prince of peace. But peace starts first in every one of us who believe. And then one day he's coming to reign in peace over this city. And I'm praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And he said, keep praying. And I thought to myself when I walked away that day, there are a lot of people just like him who they don't, how do you reconcile a broken world? How do you reconcile hate? 
How do you reconcile terrible things happening and then we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, the Messiah, who is the Prince of Peace? How do you put all of that together? And it's that experiential doubt that can really push us. And we all know there's a couple of things that this morning, one of them is very national, both of them are national, one of them is more personal to me in the sense of, of, of just the pain of it. But I would say both of them have touched my life. Let's talk about them. Number one, how do you explain a kid walking into a fourth grade class in Uvalde, Texas? You ever been to Uvalde? I mean, I've been through Uvalde since probably in the, in the, in the late 90s. Maybe year 2000 might have been the first one, but I've been through that town almost every year. Because there's a lot of great hunting around Uvalde. And so, friends that I know, I mean, we go down there. That's a little bitty sleepy town in Texas. And I've got friends there. And I talked to him this week. And I said, man, how are you? He was safe. His kids aren't old enough yet to be in that particular school at that grade. But he began to tell me about families and parents that he knew. He even knew the officer. He even knew the... the um, Border security and border control officer that went in and, and was able to, to take this shooter down. 19 fourth graders and two adults. How do we explain that? How do you figure out that evil? Now, I know, I know what the media is saying. I, I know what the world around us says. But I just know what this book says, and this book says there is evil, and we're in a war, and it's not with flesh and blood, so we better fight it on spiritual grounds instead of the physical we think will save the day. Let me tell you, there is a prince of darkness, and any way he can cause pain and suffering, he's doing it. And the only way I can explain evil like that is that's the prince of darkness. And evil, once again, has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But I know the one Jesus who came to bring life and life abundant. Guys, our world needs Jesus. He is the hope. He is the only one that can go into the heart of that kid that did the shooting. When you meet his family or you hear his family, it breaks your heart. And you just keep thinking, who, who's there to care for him when he was at that vulnerable moment, when he made that horrible decision? Our world needs Jesus. And everything we do, if we know him, ought to be about letting people know the Jesus that's changed our life, the Prince of Peace. And we'll do it until the gunfire stops, until there are no more shootings. I will stand and give testimony to the Prince of Peace, and I will tell people about Jesus. Now, that issue is so grievous to all of us. But let me tell you another one. It's personal, okay? You may not have even heard. And I know this is kind of family stuff, and so if you're, if you're not familiar with, with us and, and, and what all that we're a part of, this may be a little bit outside of what, uh, what you've heard. Last Sunday... There was a report that was done. And I'm going to read this because this is way too important for me to get something wrong. 
And so I'm cautious. Last Sunday, a report from our network of churches that we call Southern Baptist Convention was issued from the Southern Baptist Sexual Abuse Task Force and Guidepost Solutions. Guidepost Solutions is a third party. Uh, they come in and investigate, and they come in and do audits, and they come in to really try to discover the truth and what's going on. The details in this report are unthinkable and shocking. Our hearts grieve for these and all victims of abuse. Our calling is to protect the vulnerable. And we're deeply saddened by this report. And we condemn the actions of these church leaders who use their position of trust and influence to prey upon the weak and unassuming. We believe it is equally wrong for pastors and church leaders to ignore or fail to report these immoral and criminal acts by their peers. The work of the Southern Baptist Convention Task Force is important for our convention, our network, and for the healing of the survivors. We must learn from our past. We've got to build a new future. We're praying for the survivors and their families, for churches, for pastors, for spiritual leaders, for wisdom, for discernment, and the faithfulness to use this report for God's glory as we seek to make churches safe, not only for survivors, but safe from those who might yet experience abuse. We stand with and are committed to supporting those who've experienced abuse from church leaders. We know these offenses called deep harm that turns hearts away from love and away from God and away from His church, leaving the victims with lasting scars. We desire to be a safe place where everyone can find help and healing. We also know we serve a good Father who offers love and hope and healing to those who have suffered such abuse. A couple of years ago, our church did something that I think was very, very healthy in getting ahead of all this. Didn't even know about the report at that point. We just knew this had to be done. And so I'm going to ask you to welcome on the platform the chair of our trustees, and the one who led our misconduct review task force, which is what we called it, back in 2019. Her name is Tammy Crido. Tammy, welcome today. I know it's not, uh, this is not the easiest and in, in, in the thing you would want to be doing, obviously. You're so faithful, you and Ben, sitting right in there every weekend. But today you represent a very important group to us who did some work in 2019 that really helps guide us as a church. Would you share that with us? Yes. Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, so in 2019, the, with our personnel and trustees teams, along with a recently established certifying agency called the Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention, we developed practices and policies centered around how to prevent misconduct, and methods for reporting and investigating misconduct, and then our church's appropriate response if misconduct were to occur. Because we desire to do everything that we can to prevent abuse, and then to respond with hope and help and support if we encounter anyone who has been abused. Here at First Orlando, we have the policies and procedures in place that would reduce the likelihood similar events would happen here. But 
if inappropriate behavior or claims of inappropriate behavior do arise, our lay leadership are called upon to lead the response. Depending on the nature of the claim, we either report or we assist the victim in reporting the incident to law enforcement, or we launch a full investigation with outside, independent, fully certified investigators, and then their findings are reported to our lay leadership, and then appropriate measures and actions are taken with those involved. So again, our priorities are to protect potential victims and also to protect the innocent from false claims in, uh, in case anybody is just trying to harm God's church. Amen. Tammy, you, you guys did an incredible job then, and you're doing a great job for us now to monitor, to make sure that we are that safe place that I believe we owe to Him, our Heavenly Father. And I want us to do something today. I just, I just feel like we need to pray. I mean, I've just mentioned two things. I mentioned this report. I mentioned what happened in Uvalde. There's so many other things that are happening around us that's leaving brokenness. And can we just pray together as a church for the victims? We pray for those survivors. We pray just whatever God puts on your heart and whichever or whatever group comes to mind that you feel like has, has been wounded or has been harmed by evil. Can we just lift them up to the one who one day will finish what he started and he will bind the enemy and there will be peace on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we, we can't even wrap our mind around the unthinkable that happened in Uvalde. Lord, to, to wrap our mind around a church where, Lord, it has your name. And leaders are called to, to lead and to represent you. And then to know what's happening. And to realize the abuse and to realize the harm that's done. I, I just, God, I pray, show us the way through these days. And God, I pray that you will redeem even those broken places along the way. Somehow bring glory to your name in spite of all this. And teach us to believe even beyond our doubt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So guys, those two things, like I said, just represent a little bit. So I know why we doubt. I know why we struggle. And I want to just take us to a place in Scripture where somebody else did. There's two or three places we could go. There's a great passage in Matthew about John the Baptist. But today, for time's sake, let's go to the Gospel of John. Because when you read the Gospel of John in chapter 20, you see the resurrection, this incredible moment where Jesus walks out of the grave. And then all of a sudden, there is this disciple that we've already named, named Thomas. And he's struggling with the circumstances, the events. And so I want us to do something. I want us to look at what Jesus did. And so maybe in this, we learn. And I want you to, when I read this, I want you to know this. Jesus can handle your doubt. He can handle the questions you have. And by the way, Wherever you're seated in this room, wherever you happen to be streaming this or watching the television broadcast, he already knows your doubts. 
So it's not like you can hide them. You can hide them from your friends. You may hide them from your family and the people around you, but he knows. And he's not afraid of your doubt. In fact, you're going to see what he did with a disciple. He took that disciple to a whole new place. And my prayer is today, he does the same thing in this room. So read with me. You follow along. I'll read it aloud. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Now let me set it up. Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples that evening. But for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. We have no idea where he was. But he wasn't there. And so when he gets the message that Jesus is alive and showed up, he said, I'm not believing that until I see him. So now I want you to watch what happens eight days later. Watch what happens as Thomas hears the news. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to him, unless I see his hands, and in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his right side, I am not going to believe. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him. My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because of what you've seen in me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. May the Lord honor and bless his word. You know what we learn in this moment? Some simple things about those doubts. Number one, doubt's driven by desire. I know why you doubt. Because you want to know the truth. You want to know. It's driven by desire. If you didn't care, you wouldn't doubt. That's only for those who really care. And what did Thomas want? He just wanted to know for sure. He wanted to know himself. Yeah, you can believe what everybody else says about Jesus. But don't you want to know for yourself? You see, I grew up in a preacher's home. And I could have easily said, well, I just believe. My dad taught me. My mom taught me. So I'm just believing what they believe. But as far as I have found in this book, Jesus doesn't have any grandchildren. Only children. Only those who believe. Faith is personal. And so Thomas is driven by that desire. I, I want to know. And I want to make sure. And so when we call him the doubting disciple at Outing Thomas, this is the guy who said he would die for Jesus. So I can just tell you, if you're going to die for him, you want to make for sure. And you want to know for yourself that this is Jesus, the Messiah. I had a professor, a New Testament professor used to say that Thomas's doubt, there's more faith in Thomas's doubt than in most confessions. So in other words, even in this question, Thomas had a faith. He just wanted to know for sure. So let me remind you, doubt is driven by desire. The second thing, doubt requires a decision. Doubt demands a decision. In other words, if you are truly wanting to know, 
then at some point you have to decide. And what I love about this story is Jesus knew what Thomas was needing. He knew what he was thinking, and he showed up and said, okay, big boy, here you go. Go ahead. What did Thomas say to the disciples? Oh, I'm not believing until I can put my finger where the nail was and run my hand in his side. Okay, guess what? Jesus met him where he was, not where he should have been. He meets you where you are. You could be in a moment and you could be in a place that's like a desert and there's nothing spiritual happening at all. And you said, well, until I see, I just think Jesus has an amazing way of meeting us at whatever level we happen to be at. And he walks in that room, and he walks straight up to Thomas. Don't you know that was a moment? You know, there's a few places in the Bible I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. This would be one of them. Because when he walks in, by the way, the doors were locked. How do you get in? Nothing can stop Jesus. Lock doors, hide as much as you want. Jesus is still going to get there. Here he is. Thomas. He reaches out his hands. He said, go ahead, touch me. And did you know, according to the text, he never touched Jesus. He just simply said this, my Lord, my God. It's the greatest confession ever spoken. Did you know no one else in the Bible ever called Jesus, my Lord, my God? This was the first. And what he's saying in that is, my Lord, Lord means he's in control, means he's the CEO of your life, he means he's the king. My Lord, and by the way, my God, he is over it all and creator of everything. I just think Thomas summed it up in such a beautiful way. And so now he's made his decision, and his decision is, you are my Lord, and you are my God. Have you made a decision for him? If you're an honest doubter, have you you come to a point where, okay, it's time. As we used to say in certain places, fish or cut bait. It's time. Is he Lord? Is he God? And you know what? Thomas got to see him. Jesus knew there would be some of us who would never see him like that. We're not going to get to see him in the flesh like Thomas saw him. So what did Jesus say? This is a blessing waiting on you. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. I think there's a blessing waiting for those today that say, you know what? I believe he is the Lord. He is my God. And the last thing you learn from this, doubt doesn't disqualify you. Isn't it funny Jesus didn't step in the room with a book on doubt and give it to Thomas? Isn't it funny he didn't come in the room and say, Thomas, we got to talk about your doubt? No. Doubt doesn't disqualify you. In fact, you know what happened to Thomas after this moment? (laughs) We don't know in the New Testament. He's probably there. His name just doesn't appear. Now, we saw him in John 14, the night before Jesus died. Thomas is the one (laughs) when Jesus said, I'm going to go build a room for you. Because in my father's house are many rooms or mansions as we grew up with the King James And Thomas is the one that said, hey, wait a minute, Lord, where are you going? How do we know the way? And Jesus in verse 6 of chapter 14 of John said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That was Thomas. So let me tell you, the next place we see 
is what we call extra biblical material. It's history books. It's, it's people writing about church history. It's people who are writing about these apostles. Now, there's a lot of crazy books that are called the Apocrypha that have Thomas in them. But we pretty much substantiated they're not credible. But there are some that are very credible, and the most likely thing is that Thomas left Jerusalem and went to India. Yes, India. And he goes to India with what? The story of Jesus and what Jesus did. And he goes and he founds a church. And the year has been pretty much substantiated 52 A.D. Now, this moment probably happened 30 A.D. So 22 years after this moment, he's in India and there's a church born. And if you've ever read much about Christianity in India, you know there is a branch called the Thomasian Christians. Wonder where they got the name Thomasian. He is claimed to this day as a hero of the faith. Let me show you where it is. It's in a state. And this state is down in the south, what would be the southwest, Kerala, and St. Thomas, Cyril Malabar Church, Kerala is where a lot of Thomasian Christians are. Founded by this disciple who said, I'm not going to believe unless I touch him. Can I tell you something about this state that I learned from one of our dear families that are from India? And they know this area well. Let me tell you about Kerala. I had them write it down for me because I knew I would not be able to get this right. It is the first state in India to have 100% Education available for everyone. Primary education, 100%. It is the first state to see life expectancy rise above the national level. The life expectancy there is 75 years as compared to 64 years for the rest of the nation. By the way, the U.S. is 77. Is there anyone here over 77? Let me it just, I'm just kidding. I was going to have a prayer. For, yes, that's right. You're in good hands with the Lord, though. Okay, you know what else happened in Kerala? The literacy rate in Kerala is the highest of any state in India. 94%, and the rest of India is 77. And the final thing, Kerala has the lowest infant mortality rate in the nation. You think that's coincidental? You thinking that just happened? Or did it happen because a doubter named Thomas came with the gospel and planted a church? And here we are today talking about how do we deal with all the stuff. I want to do it the same way Thomas did it. I want to come to a place of being able to say, I don't understand everything. But I know enough to say this, my Lord, my God, that's what I believe about Jesus. If you're in this room today, and you've been thinking a lot about your faith, you've been thinking a lot about Jesus, can you say, my Lord, my God? I want to personally invite you today to that place. In fact, you may have been headed another direction and you're still kind of looking and you're one of those honest doubters. You're trying to put it all together, but there comes a moment you go, you know what? 
He is who he said he was. And you put your faith in him. You're watching on TV or you're on the stream, and you've come to a place of saying, you know what, I believe he is my Lord, my God. I want to believe. Well, let's do it today. Let's take the step Thomas took in that moment. Thomas didn't even have to touch him, remember? He just said, my Lord, my God. That's faith. And blessed are those of you who are willing to say it as well today. Let's bow together. I want you to just say these words if you want. If you want to make up your own, that's great. Say whatever you will, but at least let Jesus know. Jesus, I believe. You are my Lord, my God. And I turn from my sin and myself, and I turn to you. I believe. You are my Lord, my God. In Jesus' name, amen. Look this way. So that night when Jesus was telling his disciples he was going away, Thomas was there. That night that Jesus took the bread, and after he had blessed it, he broke it. And I just know Thomas was watching this. Thomas was there. He knew this moment, well, Jesus broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this was a Passover setting. It was a Passover meal. And he's taking elements and he's saying, this is now to remind you of my blood. This is to remind you of my body. As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, Remember me. So, Jesus, we have made our decision. And our questions have led us to this moment. And we know you are our Lord, our God. And I pray we will never forget the story. Though we may not end up in India, as Thomas did, wherever we go, may we tell the story of what happened on a hill in Israel where mercy was given for us. Jesus, you are our Lord, our God. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.